I wonder how often you have come, perhaps in a daily Bible reading calendar, to Acts chapter 7, and you have begun reading Stephen's sermon, one of the longest sermons in all the Bible. We read it tonight, and your eyes glazed over. And perhaps you were reading Stephen's sermon, and you thought, what does this have to do with anything? What's the point that Stephen is making here as he launches into a long history of the Israelite people? I mean, you heard it tonight. We touched on Abraham. We touched on Jacob. We touched on Joseph. We touched on Moses. We touched on Joshua. We touched on David. We touched on Solomon. And suddenly, at the end of this, perhaps you're thinking, what on earth is going on? Now, if that was you, you probably did wake up when he said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did so do you. Oh, okay. All right. Now we're getting somewhere. But I wonder... Be honest with yourself. How often have you read through Stephen's sermon and really tried to take the time to understand what's the point? And if that's you, you would have pretty good company. Because you could look in the literature about Stephen's sermon, the Christian commentaries, and you would find even potentially sound commentators generally who don't get it either. They wonder, what on earth is Stephen up to here? Because we don't understand it. Listen to what one commentator says. The purpose of the speech is still much disputed. In form, it is a lengthy recital of Old Testament history, discussing in detail what appear to be insignificant points, and culminating in a bitter attack on the speaker's hearers. What is the speaker trying to do? He goes on to say, it is not clear what the theological point of the details is. So again, notice from this commentator's mind, Stephen goes on a long historical summary of what happened in Israel. We're not sure why. And then he got really mad at them and he started scathingly convicting them. Here's another commentator. The relevance of the speech, the relevance of the speech has for long been the real problem of exegesis. It is indeed impossible to find a connection between the account of the history of Israel to the time of Moses and the accusations against Stephen. Stephen's accused for something, and it is impossible to see in this lengthy historical recitation how Stephen is really trying to defend himself. He goes on to say, the major part of the speech shows no purpose whatever. The most striking feature of the speech is the irrelevance of its main section. Now again, I'm not saying you agree with that. But if we come to Stephen's sermon and our eyes roll back in our heads and we say, whoa, way too complicated, I'm not sure immediately what the relevance is. Let's just move on to him getting stoned, and then we'll look at Acts chapter 8. Frankly, in practice, you're not really different than these commentators. 
we're just going to wash our hands of it. We're going to punt the ball over to the other team, and we're going to say, let's try again later. I'm going to fundamentally disagree with that approach to understanding Stephen, but more importantly, I'm going to fundamentally disagree with what God is doing here. And I want you to look for just one moment. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you'd like, at Mark chapter 13. We looked at Mark 13 this morning. And for those of you who are Sunday school teachers and not in with us in our sermon series, we're going through Mark chapter 13 and talking about the end times. You may want to tune in uh, during the week and catch up, follow along with us as we go through this important chapter. But in verse 9 of Mark 13, listen to what Jesus says. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak. Don't worry about it. Neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. Now listen to this. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now don't miss this. Here, who is Stephen speaking in front of? Does anyone know? The Sanhedrin? The council? Do you know that Jesus is talking about him here? Jesus is promising that Stephen is going to have the assistance of the Holy Spirit in responding to the accusations and the indictments laid against him by the Sanhedrin. And what does he say? For it is not you that speak, but the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. And here's my point. When we try to say that Stephen's lesson is completely irrelevant, we can't figure out what on earth the connection is to his accusations. Do you know what I say? Take it up with the Holy Spirit. Because he was the one that was speaking, according to Jesus' promise. It's not Stephen that speaks. It's the Holy Spirit. And friends, indeed for ourselves, if we act like Stephen's sermon is irrelevant in our own Bible reading, if we fail to give it the attention that it deserves, we ourselves are acting at least negligently according to the words of the Holy Spirit. Well, in our second section here on the life of Stephen, last week we spoke our first message on Stephen as being the faithful one who was committed to a ministry of service that was not necessarily elevated, that was messy, that involved people, that involved strife and difficulty. And we talked about how spirit-filled, faith-fueled people can thrive no matter the lowness of their position, no matter the messiness of their job, in simple, faithful service to God and others. But tonight, I'm going to look at the topic, Stephen the forceful. Stephen, the forceful. And what I want to do tonight is start by looking at the accusation that is rendered against Stephen, the answer that he gives, and then finally the application that I hope that we will be able to draw from it practically in very perhaps different contexts than Stephen. Let's start, first of all, with the accusation, shall we? And for this, I invite you to go back to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, where we left off this week and where Paul began reading for us tonight. Look with me at verse 8, will you? 
And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. This is very unique. You find actually very few examples in the New Testament when miracles are done by those who are not apostles. The, the, the acts of miracles and special signs and wonders was almost exclusively, at least in the biblical record, given to the apostles, those who had directly seen and been under the ministry of Jesus Christ. Stephen, from what we can tell, was not, and yet he is one of the few, the comparatively few, in the New Testament record, who has been given the gift of miracles, the gift of faith, in order to be um, giving special confirmation to the word that he was proclaiming. And now notice the reaction in verse 9. There arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines. This is the referencing, it seems to be, freed men. Of some kind of synagogue of freed people. And Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. No, just make one little footnote we'll come back to next week. Did you notice that the synagogue of Cilicia is represented here? Does anyone know where Cilicia, what role Cilicia played in the New Testament, or who came from Cilicia? The Apostle Paul. He identifies himself as a man of Tarsus, a city of Cilicia. And does Paul play a part in the murder of Stephen? You bet. In fact, Saul said, Paul says later, I was consenting to his death. Could it be that Stephen actually was directly disputing with Paul out of his home synagogue, and Paul was one of the ones consenting and accusing him to his death? I think it's probably not that speculative to suggest as much. This is an interesting tie-in here. We'll talk more about that next week. And notice they are disputing with Stephen And they were not able to resist the wisdom in the spirit by which he spake. This spirit-filled, faith-fueled man is simply inarguable. It is absolutely a rout in the dispute. They could not resist him. So what did they do? They suborned men. They bribed people. They paid people off to bring allegations, accusations against him. And they said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now stop there. What are the charges? Stephen, you blasphemed God and you blasphemed Moses. Now in Judaism, friend, you can't really get worse than that. You spoke against Jehovah God and you spoke against his great messenger Moses. Two absolute capital offenses to the Jewish people. Now notice what comes next in verse 12. And they stirred up the people, they tried to turn popular opinion against him, and the elders and the scribes, and came upon him and brought him to the council. Now stop there. The council is the Sanhedrin. Now just a very short bit of historical context. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 of the most important and influential elders in the land of Israel. The Sanhedrin was composed, as we, as we know elsewhere from Paul's uh, trip before the Sanhedrin, of part Pharisees and part Sadducees. There were actually 70 elders overseen by the high priest, and that made 71. 
This was the Supreme Court of Israel. You've heard a lot about the Supreme Court in the news. They've had some fairly influential opinions recently. This was Israel's Supreme Court, their governing body, in a sense, of at least Judaism and its custom and religion. And so here, this council is called. Stephen is placed before the most influential rulers of the entire land, including the high priest. And notice what they say. They set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Now remember before, they said he's blasphemed God and he's blasphemed Moses. And now they get a little more specific. And they say, he is speaking against the holy place. That's speaking against God. If you're speaking against the holy place, the temple, you're speaking against God. And you're speaking against the law. If you're speaking against the law, who are you speaking against? Moses. Okay? Speaking against God, you're speaking against Moses. You're speaking against the holy place, the temple. You're speaking against the law. Covering all four bases of Judaism. Touch them all, it's a home run. He is getting every accusation thrown against him. Now look at verse 14. Look at the explanation of this indictment. They say, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So what's their support? He's speaking against God and the temple, and he's speaking against Moses and the law. Why? Because he said that Jesus of Nazareth, not the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy the temple. So he's speaking against God and the holy place. And he said that also he's going to change the customs that Moses delivered. So he's speaking against Moses and the law. Do you get it now? That's the argument. That's the accusation. Now, we should stop for one moment and say this. Were they right? Were they right? Okay, we should step back for just one moment. On the one hand, Luke says they set up false witnesses. So we know they weren't fully right. But let me ask you this, friends. Were they fully wrong? Did Jesus ever say anything that could be construed as to destroying the temple? Do you remember in John chapter 2, As Jesus is in the temple, the Jews answered and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Now, do you you recognize Jesus was being intentionally provocative when he said that? He was literally standing in the temple, and he said, what's the sign that I'm going to do? Destroy this temple. He knew that everyone would say, oh, this temple? Now, he was speaking of the temple of his body, but he was intentionally being provocative. In fact, do you remember when Jesus was put on trial before the council himself? Do you remember what accusation they brought against him? Two false witnesses came, Matthew 26 tells us, and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That was the accusation they brought against Jesus, misrepresenting his words in John chapter 2. And do you notice when the high priest said, what do you say to this? What did Jesus do? Totally silent. 
didn't need to defend himself. It was false, but it wasn't quite entirely false. Because Jesus had made at least a similar statement. What about the idea that he was changing the customs of Moses? Was that a true statement or a false statement? Well, in one sense, it was a false statement because Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. It was not an entirely true statement. But was it an entirely false statement? No. Do you remember how often Jesus would speak against the specific traditions that had accumulated in God's word? We've seen it throughout Mark. Do you remember when Jesus said to them, you cannot put new wine in old bottles? What was he saying? You can't take the grace and the power that is coming in my ministry and place it in these inflexible old wineskins of accumulated traditions over hundreds of years by those who don't know the word of God. You can't do that. Did Jesus come to change the customs of Moses as the Pharisees weren't interpreting it? You bet he did. Was he doing it in the way that they were suggesting? Was an attack on Moses and the law? Absolutely not. So you see here the accusation. There was some truth to it, but ultimately in the way that it was presented, it was false. And you know, friends, those are the worst kinds of accusations. Those are the worst kinds of lies. Alfred Lord Tennyson, in his, Tennyson in, his poet, in his poem, The Grandmother, listen to the words he uses. There's really some wisdom here. He said that a lie which is half a truth is ever the blackest of lies. A lie which is, the, which is half a truth is the blackest of lies. Why? That a lie which is all a lie may be met and fought with outright. But a lie which is part a truth is a harder matter to fight. You understand? If it's a 100% lie, that's easier to attack. It's easier to undermine. But if it's a lie that has some germ of truth in it, it's harder to attack. By the way, this is just one reason we need to be so careful that we give the benefit of the doubt to people when we're construing their words and actions to others. Do you know why? Because we communicate so much about what a person says and does to another person, even when we give their words accurately, when we portray the tone of their voice, when we portray the context of what they said, we can have a complete half-falsehood even when we get their words right, and then the other person walks away with half a truth about what they said, but a completely wrong view of what their motive was, what their intention was, and their purpose was. And do you know what we've done? We've lied. That's what we've done. We've lied. Let's make sure that we are honest and accurate in even the way that we give witness. This was a falsehood. And it was a very damaging falsehood even though there was a grain of truth in it. Well, notice verse 15. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, on Stephen, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. I want to look more at this next week, but simply recognize the kind of patience, recognize the kind of calm and peace that Stephen faced even as he was fighting, in essence, for his life under these false accusations. There's something wonderful there that I think we'll get into more next week. So this is the accusation, right? Part truth, but really, ultimately, a falsehood. And notice, secondly here, Stephen's answer. Now, we just have a practical problem here, right, folks? 
There's 54 verses, 53 verses or so, 52 verses maybe to be exact, of sermon here. This is a little bit outside the scope of our time. But here's what we're going to try to do to make sure that we're giving this the the attention it deserves. First of all, I just want to note for you some themes that come throughout this sermon. And you can go back tonight or at some time this week, maybe when you have a break, and read this sermon again and see if this isn't true. If these themes don't come back over and over again. Here's the first theme. God's place. And what I mean by God's place is God's holy place or where God meets with his people. Okay? Notice that. It's the location of God's place. It comes back over and over. The second thing here that comes back over and over is God's messenger. Who God's messenger is. And the third thing that comes back over and over again in Stephen's defense, in his sermon, is Israel's ignorance and their rebellion. Now again, if you just have those three themes, if you have those three ideas... The location of God's holy place. The identity of God's messenger. And the ignorance and rebellion of Israel and its people. You're going to understand a lot about this sermon. And I think a lot more than the commentators we quoted at the very beginning. Now, from those themes, let's move to some topics that Stephen touches on. Will you look with me here in verse 2? First, he's going to touch on Abraham. He says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, listen up. The God of glory. That's actually not a very, uh, very often used phrase for God in the Old Testament. Stephen is exalting God as the God of glory. Appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Now just note, the location of God's place. Where did God appear to Abraham? When he was in the promised land? No, when he was in Mesopotamia, outside the promised land. God showed up to Abraham, an idol worshiper, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. And then he describes how, how Abraham obeyed. He went out of uh, the land of the Chaldeans. He dwelled in Haran. But notice verse 5. Stephen says, He gave him none inheritance in it. So God's holy place had not been established, if you will, in the promised land. Abraham had no possession to it. He was a sojourner. He was a stranger in the land that the Israelites of Jesus' day were so proud of. Our land. It says, Abraham was called out. God met with him outside of the land. And then notice in verse 6, God told him that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. Look at verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and, and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. So notice what he's communicating about Abraham. Abraham is our father. Abraham is the father of the faithful. He was the one that all those first century Jews traced back to. And what is, what is 
Stephen's message. God met him. God appeared to him when he was outside the covenant land of promise. And now notice we're going to shift to Joseph. Notice what comes next. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, Israel, its 12 tribes, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. You say, what's the relevance of that? Well, what are the themes? The location of God's presence, of his place. The identity of God's messenger. Who was God's messenger in this story? Who was the one that God was with? Joseph. What did the patriarchs do? Did they recognize him? They sold him into slavery. But notice what he says. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Where was God with him? In the promised land? No. Where? Where? Where was God with him? In Egypt. The land that would be a land of slavery and bondage. God showed up with his presence to Abraham in the land of the Chaldeans. God was with Joseph in the land of Egypt. And notice then, he tells of the dearth that came over all the land of Egypt in Canaan. And what happens in verse 12? But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. Joseph was made known to his brethren. Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. And what happened? So Jacob went down into Egypt and died. He and our fathers. You see the picture here. Joseph, the messenger of God, is rejected in ignorance and rebellion by the Israelites. And then what happens? Joseph they go to him down into Egypt and Joseph saves them. God's messenger is rejected. He is ultimately accepted as Savior. Okay? Now let's keep on going. And we're car- Verse 16 says, And we're carried over into Sychem, that Shechem, and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. You say, What on earth does this detail have to do with anything? Friend, where was Joseph buried? Was Joseph buried in the promised land? He wasn't. Where was he buried? In Shechem? Where's Shechem? Shechem is in the hated land of the first century Jews of Samaria. That's where God's messenger went and was buried. You see what he's he's poking him at? You're so proud of this place, of this temple, of this land, Well, don't forget, Abraham was called out of a different land, and God was with him. And Joseph got sent down to Egypt, and God was with him. And our fathers had to go down on their knees and beg for his salvation. They recognized it at the end. And where was Joseph buried? Joseph was buried in Samaria. Now keep on going. What was the next one? The next topic here is Moses. Look at in verse 20. Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. Pharaoh's daughter took him up, nourished him for her own son. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Where was God's messenger? In the promised land? No, in Egypt. Just like Joseph was. And then notice this. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. You see the picture? God's place 
Where was his presence? It was with Moses. What about God's people? Did they recognize God's messenger? They didn't understand that God would deliver his people by the hand of this man. So what did they do? They rejected him. Notice the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren. Why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? What is it? Israel's rebellion rooted in ignorance. Now look at verse 29. Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian where he begat two sons. And notice in verse 30, when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. You say, what does this have anything to do? Where did God appear to Moses? In the promised land? Is that where he appeared to him? in one of the holiest places ever recorded in Scripture. Take off your shoes from off your feet. This is holy ground. Where was that? Was that in Israel? It was in Midian, the land of God's enemies. What point is Stephen making? You're telling me that I'm on trial for despising the holy place. You want to talk about an Old Testament holy place? That Old Testament holy place was far outside Israel. That holy place wasn't made with your hands. That holy place was because God was there. Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. Now look at verse 35. Again, Stephen's pressing this point. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. Again, the Israelites' rejection, their rebellion, their ignorance, and contrasted with God's promise, God's sending of his messenger and appearing to him outside the land of Israel. And now notice this. Verse 37, this is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. Friend, who was that prophesied of? As Jesus. What is Stephen doing? He's again saying, yeah, remember that Moses, that guy that you said I am speaking blasphemously against? You want to know what Moses said? He prophesied about another ruler who would come that you'd be required to listen to. He's, point, he's setting them up. He's pointing them to Jesus. Notice verse 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. That word in the Greek is ekklesia. It's the called out ones. It's the gathering together of God's people in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively or the living oracles to give unto us the law that Stephen was now being being accused of blaspheming. But look at verse 39. Two of our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again to Egypt. What's the theme? The rejection, the rebellion, out of ignorance of the fathers of the people of Israel. Saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. But for as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced, don't forget this, in the works of their own hands. What's the theme? You rejected God's messengers over and over and over and over again. 
You didn't understand that the place of holiness is the place where God is, no matter where the location is. And you have prized what you can make with your own hands. You tried to make gods of your own hands and serve them. Verse 42, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. This is a quotation from the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5 and verse 25 and 26, you can look at it at your own time. He quotes how their offering to him really was the practice of idolatry. Figures which ye made to worship them. Now look at verse 44. There's another topic. This topic is now of the tabernacle and of the ultimate temple. He says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Now don't, don't miss this. Stephen is saying, the tabernacle that you had, was that something you made at your own hands? Like your idols? No. That's something Moses made according to what God had showed him. Right? This is God's making. The tabernacle was something that was transportable. You could take it anywhere. It was with him in the wilderness. It was the symbol of God's presence. It was the place where God dwelt among them. It was done according to the fashion that God had shown them. Let's keep on going. Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles. Now just pause there for one minute. Came in with Jesus. Does anyone know how to explain this? Did Jesus come in to the possession of the Gentiles with them? It's a pretty easy answer, actually. Do you know Jesus is the same Greek word that you'd hear translated Joshua? This is really just saying Joshua. But Jesus and Joshua being a picture, if you will, Jesus being a picture of Joshua, this is simply translated Jesus here. He's speaking of Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles. Again, notice how Stephen calls the promised land. The promised land is, he said, that's the possession of the Gentiles that God brought you into and drove the people out. Again, what's he getting at? You Israelites are so proud of your land, of your promised land. You are so proud of your temple, of your holy place. And what you're missing is that this was the possession of the Gentiles that God brought you into and drove out everyone. This is about him. It's not about you. Keep on going which also our fathers, I'm sorry, um, who found, in, sorry, in the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. He's being accused of blaspheming the temple. So, so Stephen says, here's the temple that was made. It was made by Solomon. And now notice now how Stephen turns to theology. Look what he says. He's quoting Isaiah 66 and verse 1 and 2. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Now just stop there. When was the last time we heard Stephen talking about things made with hands? What was he talking about? He referenced the phrase, made with hands. Whose hands? Whose hands? Look at verse 41. Whose hands? God's hands? Whose hands? 
the Israelites' hands. Did they make good things or bad things? They made idols. Do you see the connection here? He says God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? I just want to try to bring these things together for you. What's Stephen's point that he's driving at here? Again, you Israelites are so proud of your temple, of your holy place, made with human hands, as this being the place of God. You are so proud of Moses and the law as you interpret it. But do you know what the problem is, guys, Stephen is saying? The problem is you're missing the boat here. Because the real question is not whether you can make this ornate building that God is going to dwell in forever. The real question is what what a holy place is, is wherever God is. And God appeared to your fathers outside the land of promise. That's where He showed up. That's where His promise was fulfilled to His people, where His presence was seen. And in fact, when you try to build things with your own hands... You went fantastically astray and pursued idols. Friends, don't think this sermon isn't relevant. It's hitting the bullseye square in the target. Stephen is absolutely indicting them for their own blindness, and now he's going to get applicational. The truth is going to get really, really squarely confrontational. Look what he says. Ye stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Friend, what did it mean when Stephen called them uncircumcised in heart and ears? Do you know what he's saying? You're just like the Gentiles. You pride yourself that you're in the kingdom of God. No, you are just as bad as the Gentiles. You're a Gentile. You could not have insulted a Jew almost in a, in a, more, in a more difficult way for them to understand than this. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, As your fathers did, so do ye. (laughs) Wow. We won't go look at it now. You can go back and look at it when you read. When Stephen is giving the history of Israel, do you know what he says? Our fathers. Our fathers. Our fathers. And now he gets to the end of the sermon. And it's time to apply it. And he says, as did ye, so do your fathers. As did your fathers, so do you, your fathers. The truth is coming home. He's going to bring it right to their doorstep. Which of the fathers have not your fa- prophets, excuse me, have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, the righteous one, which is Jesus, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Do you know what he's saying? Here's what I understand him to be saying throughout this whole sermon. You are accusing me of disrespecting God's law and God's holy place. But do you know what the reality is, you rulers of Israel? You don't understand what a holy place really is, do you? And you don't understand what a holy place is in light of the Old Testament that you, that you pretend to hold up and sanctify. And not only that, 
When you say that you respect the law, what you are actually revealing is that you are exactly like your fathers who despised the law themselves and who did not follow it. You're the ones who ultimately are under God's judgment here, not me. Wow. That's the sermon. That's the idea. That, to me, I think, is the logic that he is bringing out. You have missed the messenger. You have disregarded the law. And your judgment will be like the judgment of your fathers, you Gentile hearts. And that's when, thirdly, we need to look here at the application. Friends, I don't know what Stephen knew for sure, but he probably had an idea that this wouldn't end well for him. He was looking at the most important, influential people in the entire land of Israel, and he was calling them Gentiles, spiritually and religiously, and utterly cutting them right to the heart. Look at the effect of this. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. His ultimately was a sermon that was worth dying for. And he did. He died for it. He was killed. What applications can we bring to this message in the way about what it looks like for us to be a person who is full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith as we have been looking at this example of Stephen in? First of all, let me suggest this. Stephen was on trial for the right reasons. Stephen was on trial for the right reasons. Why was Stephen on trial? Because of what he was holding up truthfully about who Jesus of Nazareth was and what effect he would have on the Jewish religious system. That's why he was on trial. Do you know what he was not on trial for? He wasn't on trial for being a jerk. He wasn't on trial for pursuing minor disputes and skirmishes over here. He was on trial. He was ultimately persecuted. He was ultimately killed for standing on the most central truths of our faith. He was persecuted, in other words, as a Christian. Listen to what 1 Peter 4 says. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Was Stephen reproached for the name of Christ? You bet he was. He held firm to his death about the effect that Jesus of Nazareth had on that temple and on those religious systems. He said, yes, Jesus is the one who is the ultimate Messiah and Savior. Listen to what Peter goes on to say. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, or listen to this, or as a busybody in other men's matters. A meddler. Don't suffer for that. Don't suffer for trying trying to stick your nose in everyone else's business. Suffer for this on the name of Christ. Do you know what a spiritual person knows? A spiritual person knows how to pick his or her battles. They know how to do it. They know which ones are connected to the name of Christ and they must stand no matter the consequences. And they know the other ones that are not for the name of Christ. Do you remember Josiah in the Old Testament? 
Josiah, we read about him not too long ago as one of the great revivalist kings. He was doing all these wonderful things for God. And suddenly there's a dispute between the king of Egypt and between someone else. And what's Joseph going to do? The king of Egypt was proposing to go right through his land. Right through his land. And Josiah said, "Uh uh-uh, no way. And he went right out against him. He says, you're not coming through my land like that. And what did the king of Egypt say? Why are you messing with me like this? God told me to go do this. And Josiah didn't listen. And here's what Chronicles says. He didn't listen to the king of Egypt speaking from the mouth of God. He picked a battle that God didn't want him to pick. And he died at great cost to the people of Israel. Friends, pick your battles. Pick the battles that are for the name of Christ. And then when you suffer, be blessed. Be happy. Stand confidently that this battle is for the name of Christ. This is Stephen's example. I love it. A spiritual man who knew that he was on trial for the right reasons. Secondly, what's another application? Stephen's defense was rooted in a deep, thoughtful interpretation and application of Scripture. I love this. Do you remember what 1 Peter 3 tells us also to people who are facing suffering? He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And here we see Stephen being ready to give an answer, relying on the Holy Spirit to direct him and to empower him to speak. But do you know why we know he was ready? Because he had the Old Testament at his fingertips that he could bring out the truth of God's word under the direction of the Holy Spirit. This is, I think, an idea of what, of what Paul tells Timothy when he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Friend, do you want to stand for the name of Christ when you're challenged? When you are called upon to be ready to give an answer, you have to be rooted in the Word of God. You have to be rooted in rightly interpreting it and applying it so that you can confidently and faithfully speak it at the direction of the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon was speaking of John Bunyan. You probably know him as the man who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And Spurgeon has one of the most wonderful um, uh, descriptions of any man. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, do you know if you pricked John Bunyan, like with a needle, his blood would flow bibline, Bible blood. That was just the idea of him. He said, everything that flowed from him was Bible, Bible, Bible. Study to show yourself approved unto God. And when you're called upon to give a defense... Don't be surprised when the Holy Spirit brings the right verse to your mind for that situation. This was Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, prepared, ready to give an answer. One more thing. Not only was Stephen on trial for the right reasons, not only was his defense rooted in the interpretation and application of Scripture, but finally Stephen was willing to be direct at the right time and for the right reasons. Stephen wasn't content just to give an exposition of Scripture and leave it there. At the end of his sermon, he looked at them and he said, now I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. And you know, friends, there are times when God calls us to be very direct. 
He calls us to be very bold. He calls us not to fear the people who are in front of us, but to fear the God for whom we are speaking. I'm not saying be a jerk. I'm not saying walk around trying to poke everyone in the eye. That wasn't Stephen. Do you remember when Stephen was most direct? Why, in, under what context was he most direct? When they say, what do you have to say for yourself? All right, you speak. Tell us, what do you have to say for yourself? And Stephen says, you want to know what I have to say for myself? I'll tell you. And he didn't flinch for a second. I'm not talking about going around and poking everyone in the eye. I'm, I'm saying we are to be gentle. We are to be meek. We are to be kind. But there are times when God wants you to be direct. And you need to bring the word of God, not just from the cloud up here. You need to bring it down and you need to put it in the eyes of the person who is in front of you and say, look at this. This applies to you. And there are times, again, when we're giving the gospel, when we're speaking to our coworkers, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our fellow students, God's going to call you to be bold and to be direct and bring it to them, trusting in the Holy Spirit to know exactly when and for the right reasons. Do you know what's said of John Knox? It's said of John Knox that he feared God so much that he feared no man. He feared God so much that he feared no man. There's a story about the preacher Hugh Latimer. You remember Latimer, one of the, one of the Christians provided or, or reflected in the, in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's a story recounted of him preaching to Henry VIII, a man who had power over him, of course, to put him to death. And it said of Latimer that as he began his sermon, he said, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII, who has the power to, to command you to be sent to prison and who can have your head cut off if it please him? Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? And then he paused and he continued. Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before Him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, before Him to whom one day you will have to give account yourself. Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your Master and declare all of God's Word. Do you know what a man who is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit does? What does a woman do who is full of faith and the Holy Spirit does? What, what does she do? They know when to be on trial for the right reasons. Their defense is rooted in the interpretation and application of Scripture. Perhaps, but perhaps above all, they're willing to be bold. They're willing to be direct at the right time and for the right reasons because they fear God more than they fear man. As I hope this has been helpful for you tonight in understanding this passage of Scripture and why Stephen said what he said. But above all, I hope all of us will take it to heart this evening that for us to be filled with faith and the Holy Spirit this week will be in our own way to look like Stephen, a man who is forceful, upholding the name of Christ no matter the cost.